This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. And this episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. They've got all the major brands of golf simulators and launch monitors like the Foresight GC Quad, Skytrack, Unicore, and some other models that we're going to be discussing in this episode. They also can outfit your home simulator studio with their premium impact screen, their mats, their nets, projectors, anything you need. So if you need help building your simulator at home, check them out at shopindoorgolf.com and we appreciate their support. Adam, you playing any golf recently? We haven't talked about your game. I've been out for a while. I'm still with this hip injury and so I, I... I do try occasionally, but I found myself the other day getting so upset with my hip injury that I just wanted to swing through the pain out of aggression. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a good place to no, be in mentally. Uh, maybe, so, like, <laughs> maybe you need to get in touch with Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf for some help there. Yeah, actually, I should do that, definitely. It's been one of those things I'm like, well, I just hope that it goes, but I've reached that age, 37 now, where things don't heal as fast as when you're in your 20s. And so I think I need a little bit more help or a little bit more rest. I feel you. In my late 30s, I'm trying to stay pain-free, but once in a while, something will creak or get out of, out of whack, and then pain enters the scenario. But in any event, we won't bore our listeners with our physical disabilities. What are we talking about this episode? Launch monitors. Yes. So so this is a category that I think has pretty much exploded over the last three, four, five years. There's so many options. We'll try and cover this from two standpoints. One is what you can expect from them. I've tested a lot of the budget ones where you can consider the $500 and below category. I've tested pretty much all of them. Um, as you know, I have a SkyTrack. We can talk about that level. And Adam has worked extensively with TrackMan and the GC Quad and so have I from time to time. So we'll try and talk about what they're capable of. But more importantly, I think it's really in the context of how do you use them effectively to actually improve? Because the last thing I want people to do you know, is invest in one of these things and then they, they don't know how to use it. So you know, I think we'll provide some practice methods as well, right? Yeah, yeah, we can go into the benefits of it. I, I'm sure. I mean, there there are so many people now that I get for lessons that they've got their own track man or quad. I think some people had one before I did even. So it's there are people out there like that. And then there's yourself with the SkyTrack. And these are pretty good devices at the moment. So there's, I think COVID really hit home for people in, into getting these devices because they're stuck at home. They just, they got a little bit of spare cash. They don't know what to do with it. Ah, oh, why not set up something indoors for myself? Yeah. I mean, I've been kind of interested and involved in the home simulator market for like five or six years now. And it was definitely on an upward trajectory before COVID. Like I saw a lot of adoption more so as I think SkyTrack was the big 
game changer just because it allowed people to get a real simulation option for $2,000 versus having to pay for a TrackMan or some of the more expensive models. And then obviously as COVID hit, <laughs> everyone rushed to buy these things because people were stuck at home. So they were, they're sold out and, and a lot of them continue to have supply chain issues. But what overall, like when I think about launch monitors, I, yeah, I, I think of them as a diagnostic tool and a feedback tool to, if used properly, make your practice sessions a little more effective. Like what's your kind of top level thought when you think about these devices? You know, the more the more feedback you can get, the better, generally. I mean, we can we can go the other end of the spectrum, but it's it's rare. But if you're just hitting indoors in the winter and you're just hitting into a net, there's so much of the feedback is lost that you can start to ingrain some bad habits. And so if you can get information on distance, that helps. Direction is really awesome to have <laughs> it's just you have to go into the upper end of the market you know two thousand dollars or so although they did bring out that r10 that supposedly gives directional information as well for for five hundred dollars i believe the r10 it's at 600 the introductory price okay so i mean i don't know the quality of that i haven't tested that device but yeah if you can get directional information then you've almost got all your all your bases covered. You've got distance, direction, and then you can get strike quality by just some face spray. Absolutely. So why don't I mean the one category that I get the most questions about is that five hundred dollar and below category. And I think the most common question I get on Twitter or elsewhere is like, well, when when are we going to get the five hundred dollar launch monitor that has the simulation and launch angle and everything that's so accurate? that will be on par with the ones that cost thousands of dollars. I don't think we're there yet. I'm going to be honest with people. You have to <laughs> manage your expectations. I've tested a lot of these. I've tested them against SkyTrack. I, I, I know my numbers on every launch monitor, whether it's TrackMan or GC Quad. So I have a pretty good understanding of when I get on one of these things, if it's giving me reasonable numbers. So wh- why don't we start with that category? I could just kind of pop through the popular models that I've tested. You could always go, I'll do some links on the show notes to the reviews I've done on my site. But have you had any experience with them? Like the the Swing Caddy ones or the PRGR? Have you tested any of them yet? Yeah, the Swing Caddy SC200 I tested. I still have it. I really like it. I, I find it really fun. I mean, it just gives distance, really. But I was testing it against one of the higher end devices. It was a, a flight scope. So it was one of the older models, but when it first came out, the flight scope was like $15,000. And because of the way that the SC2 measures certain things or it uses algorithms for certain things, I found the outcomes for distance more consistent than the expensive device. And the reason for that is occasionally you would get a misread with a flight scope of spin rate. So you'd hit a shot and it would double the spin rate because of how it measures it. Sometimes it sees the same part of the ball twice or it thinks it sees the same part of the ball twice and then doubles the spin rate. And so you'd get some wild numbers with there that just didn't make sense. Whereas because the SC200, the spin rate was algorithmic, it would say you would input the club that you were using. And then based on your swing speed and the ball speed, it would guess the spin rate. And I found it to be much more accurate and much more enjoyable to use. 
Yeah, I've I've found I'll break this category into two sections. So the PRGR, which has kind of become like the sleeper hit of this whole category at 229 bucks. It's a Japanese launch monitor that got repurposed for the American market and the rest of the world a couple of years ago. And then since then they they actually improved it. There was a 2021 version. Doesn't look all that special. It's kind of a no frills looking offering, but I've had a lot of experience testing it myself and, and interacting with tons of golfer, golfers who've used it, who've either purchased it through me or elsewhere. And it's incredibly accurate as a swing speed radar. So I think if you're doing um, swing speed training with like super speed golf or the stack, it's almost a necessity to have something like this where you can track your swing speed. So first and foremost, it's a good swing speed radar to track if you are increasing your swing speed. It's, it's really important to get that feedback when you're doing that kind of practice. But I've tested... And, and even I would throw the SC200 Plus now into that category. It also has a swing speed feature. Very solid with wedges. The newer PRGR was like identical to my SkyTrack. They improved the algorithm for shorter wedges. And I'm talking from like 25 yards to 80 yards, like almost identical to my SkyTrack within a yard or two. And this is testing indoors on a net. So I would say that most of the options in this category and there's really only four or five are pretty are going to be pretty good with your shorter to intermediate wedges and we'll get into the practice routines after that and i I would also caution people like you have if you're using it indoors these are doppler radars they do need anywhere between like three to six feet behind the ball and probably another four or five six feet in front of it so you're going to want to have enough space for it to see it you don't want a busy background so i've seen pictures of people's garages where they've got like a golf net and all this junk behind it and it can't really track the ball effectively you need some nice difference in colors you don't want a white background and a white golf ball that that's difficult for it to track it so under the right circumstances indoors you can get pretty accurate readings and that goes with as you said i i saw that with pretty much every club in my bag with you know you change manually the irons on the sc200 or the prgr and then it kind of calculates that not at not 100 percent accurate but i found it anywhere between like two to five percent Yeah, I was going to say the only disadvantage I found with the SC200 is these devices don't measure spin rate and they don't measure launch angle. They guess it based on your club. So if you launch it pretty normally, then it's going to to provide a pretty good accurate estimation. So I found the the seven iron or, or any of the irons or wedges were very close to what my gc quad measures however when i went with the driver because i have a weird way of launching it i launch it very high with much lower spin the distance was off by about 30 yards 20 or 30 yards yeah i would say it as ball speed increases it struggles a little bit more i would say the prgr is much better with the driver and and especially with with high swing speed players does prgr measure the launch angle or does it guess it i think it's guessing it but i have i use the prgr in conjunction with my skytrack because i want to skytrack doesn't directly measure swing speed and the prgr is giving me a better swing speed number so i'm I'm often always looking back and forth between like swing speed ball speed and distance and it's pretty it's pretty spot on the prgr is like 
I got to get you one of them. It's 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 pretty spooky how good it can be. But again, depending on your delivery, like on the original model, people who launched their wedges very high, it couldn't see the wedges because the the sensor was smaller, and they improved that on the newer model. Long story short, I think what you're saying and what you're alluding to is that. All these launch monitors have strengths and weaknesses. Some matchups in certain players, like Adam, if you're launching it super high with low spin, it might not calculate that as, as strongly as a GC quad would, which you would not expect because the GC quad's 100 times more expensive. So yeah, you have to take some of the numbers with a grain of salt. Yeah, if you get if you get a monitor that most of them are going to measure ball speed, right? PRGR, SE200, they measure ball speed. So that's that's pretty good. If it's guesstimating or using algorithms for spin rate and launch angle, then you're going to get some error in the, the reliability of the information. Now, it might be very consistent. For example, my SC200 with a driver produces very consistent distances. That is relative as well. So if, if I drop, if I hit it awful and the ball flight drops 20 yards on the GC quad, it'll probably drop 20 yards on the SC200 as well. But the GC quad is giving me more accurate distances. Yeah. Another thing I would say is if you use them outdoors, because they are Doppler radars, they generally are more accurate because they have a little bit more room to see the ball travel. The only caveat to that is I'd say then you're dealing with range balls and you know, range balls, as people know, you go to a driving range and some of the balls are worn out. Some of them are not worn out. There could be limited distance balls. So you do have to be a little careful of the conditions of the rain balls, range balls. I mean, as if they're newer, better balls, then yes, the distances should be closer to what you'd see with the premium ball. But there's a little bit of a of a change there. That's a good advantage of these uh, these devices as well is because they take that initial ball flight, the first yes. three to six feet. And then they guesstimate or use algorithms for the distance from there. So that's a good thing because if, say, you are practicing into the wind one day and then next day it's downwind, you're going to be seeing on the range wildly different distances, whereas these devices are going to give you a more consistent outcome. They're going to tell you without wind and without bald balls or without the cold or whatever, the ball would have flown this distance. So I kind of like that. They call it yeah, normalization. It, it's Yeah, it's like a benchmarking tool, so to speak. Getting into the higher-end ones in this category, again, I'll post links to the reviews with the testing I've done so you can see a little bit more in-depth data. At the $500 and probably a little bit below that now because there's some sales going on around the holidays, then you have the Swing Caddy SC300i and the Rapsido MLM. Those are the two that I like the most. The FlightScope Mevo is also another option at this level. I prefer the Swing Caddy and the Rapsido to that to that one, even though some people do like the FlightScope. That's just my own personal opinion. Quickly summarize the difference. The Rapsido MLM has an excellent app and they keep making it better. They actually just upgraded it and now they have some dispersion data. If you're practicing outside, you're not going to get that indoors. It can't, it can't determine your launch direction indoors. So I want to make that distinction. But the Rapsido MLM has a more robust app. It kind of gives you a visual representation of where all your shots landed up, but it is giving you swing speed, ball speed, carry distance. It does have launch angle. I found it to be pretty accurate with launch angle. The only problem and the drawback with that is it requires an iPhone or a tablet. So it's measuring with the radar as well as the camera from your phone or tablet. 
So it's only limited to iOS users right now. If you have an Android, you cannot use their app. So MLM and you cannot use it without the app. So you need to be setting up your phone behind the ball at the range or indoors. And there's a little bit of a drawback there. It can drain the battery of your phone. I found out in like sunlight at the range, it overheats your iPhone and it won't work. So there are some drawbacks on using that. You have to set up the app and it's it's a little bit more burdensome to use. But I would say if you like the data and you like the app, Rapsodo is awesome. The benefit of the SC300i is it's it's super simple. You turn it on and all the data is displayed right there on the screen of it. And it also has an accompanying app. What data does the SCI give you? So same thing. It, it It's giving you launch angle. It's also giving you apex. I would say that the launch angle I found on the Rapsodo and the SC300 is very close. It's in the ballpark. Would I do club fitting with it? No. But if you're working, we'll get into practice ideas. But if you're working on like launching your driver higher and you could benchmark where you started, let's say it was saying you're launching it at nine degrees and that might be in the realm of, of close, close enough. You could see that you're adding launch angle to your shots over time and verify that. So I think they're both pretty good for launch angle. The SC300i will give you spin in the app. I wouldn't rely on it indoors. It's not me- say, yeah, that- it, it's not it's not close enough. I, I would not and also the flight scope Mevo does. I would not rely on these launch monitors for accurate spin rates. I got sometimes they were off by over like a thousand RPMs. And if it's that much, then I don't know what the benefit of it is then. What about the averages? Did you do you just look at a ten ball data set? Yeah, it was there I I did not I'm a little we'll get into spin rate maybe further down on this episode. I don't know if regular golfers should be concerning themselves or obsessing over spin rate to begin with all that much. And if you can't get it accurate enough in the first place, it's one of those things where I'd be like, just let's leave that alone. (laughs) I wouldn't worry about it because it's not necessarily accurate enough. And I don't know if people necessarily know what to do with the information as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would say that if you want to invest more, the SC300 and the Rapsodo, if you want app and some data, like they'll they'll keep track of your distances over time with each club. I'd say the Rapsodo gets the edge on the app. It's a better app. But the SC300, I think, is easier to use because you can just turn it on and you don't need the app to use it. So it's a little bit, for someone like me who likes simplicity, I prefer that one. But they're both fairly comparable in terms of their accuracy. They're very solid with accuracy. I tested it against my SkyTrack. The sensors are a little bit larger. So that they're pretty good on that, you know, swing speed, ball speed, distance, launch angle, apex height. Again, even if it was correct, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I don't care what even my Skytrax says on apex height. I just, it, it's, it's a, to me, it's almost like a somewhat irrelevant statistic to look at. Yeah, it's just optimizing. I really yeah. look at that. Yeah, I think that's overkill. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that maybe on the more expensive ones. So that's kind of like my brief overview on that category if you want the basic ones the prgr is awesome se 200 is awesome but if you do want like a little bit more advanced apps and stuff like that then the 300 and the rapso mlm are awesome flight scope mevo i i didn't think the app was as good with versus the rapsodo and it struggled a little bit more indoors for me at least versus the other two so that again i'll, I'll post all my links to the reviews on those but more importantly, how do we practice with these things? Adam? Do we have to, we, we got to give people some ideas on how they can 
practice with these more effectively if they purchase one. Well, yeah, it's just, it just gives you extra information on distance. So you can start to track the distances you hit with each club, which is really important. Not just to know how far your father's shot is going. That, that's good to know because, you know, if you're playing towards the back of the green, you want to know how far a perfect shot for you goes so that you don't overshoot the green. But you also need to know your averages and then you could even dive in if you're really analytical like myself. You might want to look at the standard deviations and the spreads as well. Some some apps do that for you automatically. Some spit it out as a consistency value. So you can start to kind of plot your dispersions and say, okay, well, an A dime for me perfectly is 170, but the average is 160 and the range is kind of 150 to 170. So when you know those numbers, you can start to plot your way around a golf course much better. Yeah, I mean, if you're just getting the, let's say you're practicing into a net at home over the winter, which is the scenario that a lot of listeners are going to find themselves in, and you had one of these. I think there's three categories for me that I've used them with that are helpful. The first would be wedge practice. I think we've discussed this in other episodes. A lot of golfers overlook those intermediate wedge distances. And I'm talking about, you know, let's say 30 to 80 yards where you're making less than full swings. Most of these products are pretty accurate on those distances. So you could start challenging yourself. The wedge routine I like to kind of start off with any practice session is I go for my like 40 yard shot, 50 yard shot, 60 yard shot. So I'm kind of establishing those feels and then I kind of randomly test myself. I'll say, all right, try and hit a 75 yard or try and hit a 45 yard. So I'm kind of going back and forth between my repetitive and random practice. And essentially, you're just varying your swing speed. You're learning to match a swing speed with that yardage so that when you get on the course and you have a 65 yard shot, I'm far more confident with those distances because I've done this practice with these launch monitors than I was prior to that. So I think that's a fairly low-hanging fruit for a lot of golfers. Yeah, it's great to have or build a system for yourself, whether it's some kind of clock system like the pelts thing, you know, swinging your arm back to nine o'clock. And, you know, I, I know that a nine o'clock sand wedge for me is 60 yards. And then I've got other gears that I can tap into as well. So a soft nine o'clock is 50, normal nine o'clock is 60, aggressive nine o'clock is 70. So I've basically mapped out everything from kind of 40 yards all the way up to 100 yards. After that point, it's just full swings. So I'm never stuck on a golf course. If you put me 70 yards, I'm like, okay, that's an aggressive nine o'clock swing with a sand wedge. Yeah, I would go back to our wedge episode with Andrew Rice, which was what, two or three episodes ago now. So like for me, for example, I do the clock thing and I only use my lob wedge. And Andrew had a a different philosophy. I don't think one's better than the other where he was able to use three different lofted wedges to kind of achieve all these different distances. So I think this is a, you know, if you're spending your winter in your garage or wherever, and let's say you're a less than optimal wedge player and you've been ignoring those shots, I think that's a real productive way to spend your time is kind of build a system for yourself. Can you make those reference points for those distances? And these are accurate enough where if you hit it 55 yards on the launch monitor, that's going to be, and you're using a premium golf ball, which is even more important, that's going to be pretty close to what you can see on the course, or at least close enough that, you know, you'll be within that 
let's say five plus yard window. So I, I think for me that that's a great starting point with all these because they are very accurate with wedges. Yeah, and you can play long game games as well. I used to play games in group coaching where I'd set someone, I'd first ask them how far they hit a seven iron, or at least how far they think. And then they'd say something like 150, and I'd say, okay, well, I'm going to give you a range between 140 and 160, so 10 yards either side. And let's see how many in a row you can get into that range. And so, yeah, it's, it's a real good way of quantifying how good you're getting. And what I found playing that game is people often adjust their expectations of how far they hit a club. So they might start out thinking they hit a, a certain club 150. And by the end of that game, they say, actually, I probably hit it only about 140. Most of my shots were coming up short. Yeah, the actually the the swing caddy products, the SC two hundred and the three hundred, do have some games built into them. They're pretty rudimentary, but you can pick a distance and see. It, it kind of does that for you and it grades you on it. So that's a fun little game you can play. I think with irons or approach clubs, whether it's you know iron uh, where you're trying to lock in some distances, that's one way to go. What do you think about? I mean, this will be more up your alley with a little differential and variability practice how about picking 150 yards trying to hit your driver 150 yards trying to hit multiple clubs to that target or even taking like sometimes like last night I was doing this with my sky track I was taking my pitching wedge which for me is about a 140 145 club because I de-loft the thing so much that's why I hit it so far I was trying to hit it 100 yards, then 120 yards, then 115 yards, then 135 yards. So I'm taking one club, trying to hit it multiple distances. So I think you can kind of break up the monotony and do, I know, you know this is more in your realm and that skill building stuff, but this is, this is the type of practice I do in my net at home all the time. Because on the golf course, we're being tasked with all these different distances and you're not going to get the perfect number every time. So that that's a lot of the practice I do with approach clubs. It's strange. I'm actually not a fan of that as much. <laughs> I don't I don't know. And I know it fits in with the differential practice, but in terms of hitting one club different distances, I I don't see as much value in that myself. I mean, it's something I've done in the past and it's something I play around with occasionally, but it, it would be a very small amount of my practice that I would do. But that's not to say that, you know, if you've never done that before, go out and try it. You'll probably learn something from it, you know, how to sequence your body differently. Just not something I, I usually prescribe to a lot of people. But maybe on a, a less extreme version of that would be hit a certain club and hit it as hard as you can. Hit it what feels like 80% and then hit it what feels like a stock shot, which is usually 90% for most people and see which one produces the most consistent distance outcome. So that's a, a sort of less extreme version of it. But That's uh, what I've kind of figured out doing that type of practice is that some people I think are, some people are more accurate when they take something off of their swing. I've actually found that I'm not. <laughs> I, yeah, me neither. When I, when I take something off, I, I tend to hook it more because my path gets a little more extreme. So through a lot of this testing, I, I, I've found that I'm better going closer to 100% with approach clubs. So looking at that, my ability to generate that distance, I've just noticed that I'm better at doing that when I'm going at it a little bit harder versus taking something off. In any event, that that's some 
experimentation you could do. I found value in it. Maybe we're disagreeing on this for the first time. Hey, but we can. We <laughs> can. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I have more so on the short, on the, on the higher lofted clubs. And maybe that's because I do deloft so much. So, like, sometimes I'll find myself in a situation where I do have to take something off of an iron so I don't nuke it over the green. So, I do have to experiment with different swing speeds to generate different distances. Either way, it's something you could do. The more important practice that I've done with these type of launch monitors has been with the combination of swing speed training and then driver training. So looking at swing speed and ball speed with the driver, how much swing speed am I generating? But more importantly, how much energy am I transferring to the golf ball, which is really measured in the smash factor and ball speed. So if I'm swinging it, let's say at 100 miles an hour, can I get close to that 150 mile per hour ball speed, which would mean that I have struck it really well on the club face and, and transferred over that energy, certainly in conjunction with spraying the face. So I, I think, you know, for, for golfers who are looking to get better with their driver or adding distance, these are, I would say that's other than the wedge practice, I think that's one of the best ways to train with them. Yeah, someone on my forum, they asked, they wondered what the trade-off would be between swinging harder and sendedness of strike. Yep. You know, if you manage to get five mile an hour extra speed out of it, but you hit it half an inch more offline, what would be the difference? And while it would be fun to actually test that out and see how far offline you have to hit it on the face before that speed drops off, the simple way that you guys can do it at home with these launch monitors is just to look at ball speed and then try different efforts. So, you know, swing it as hard as you can and see what the ball speed is. Swing it softer, you know, what feels like 90%, then 80%, then maybe 70% and see what the ball speed is. You may find a nice sweet spot. It may, it may, it may be that it's not swinging out of your shoes that produces the highest ball speed because maybe your strike becomes so bad when you do that, that it kind of counteracts the extra swing speed. Absolutely. And another thing that one of the reasons I always keep the PRGR behind me when I'm hitting my driver, even with the SkyTrack, is I want to measure my perceived effort and then what is showing up on the launch monitor. And I, I found something interesting recently. So like my cruising swing speed now with driver, I would say is between you know, if I'm moving well and my body is good, probably like 108 to 110 miles an hour. And I'm trying to verify that when I practice at home, seeing my ball speed, how I'm striking it on the face. Like I, I can, I can achieve pretty optimal numbers at those swing speeds. But when I notice like, all right, let's take it up a notch and I try and swing harder. I don't generate that much more swing speed. Maybe I'll get to like 111 or 112. But then I'll see ball speed plateau, and that's because of what you alluded to earlier, is that I'm not striking it as well on the face. I'm not transferring as much energy over. So I'm taking that info and knowing that when I swing out of my shoes on the golf course, I'm probably not going to gain something more because now my, my face strike will suffer. And when that happens with your driver, all bad things are happening. You know, you're going to lose ball speed if I'm striking it to the heel or the toe, now I'm affecting my accuracy because of gear effect. If I strike it too low on the face, now I've got bad vertical gear effect working against me. The, the, the club is going to de-loft it. It's going to spin more and I'm going to lose even more distance. You'd probably only see that on your launch monitor though because the SkyTrack measures launch angle and spin 
on the ones that don't measure launch angle and spin, if you thin it a little bit, you'd probably only see the ball speed drop. Yeah, you- obviously, yes. But that's why, like, for someone who, like, say, doesn't have the sky track, spray the face in conjunction with that and keep track of the ball speed. But I guess my overall point is, is, like, you can work getting the feedback of swing speed and ball speed with your driver in conjunction with impact location, if that's all you have to work with, kind of arriving at that perceived effort and swing speed that seems to generate the best strikes. I think that's what a lot of people can work towards. Yeah, I even do it with irons. I'll set up to maybe 150, a 150 yard target, and I'll try a smooth eight or, a, you know, hitting a nine really hard. I'll see which one gets the closest proximity to the pin. But I mean, you can do that distance wise. You could look at all the distances and see the standard deviations. But with when you get to sky tracks and, and the better launch monitors, you can see the direction as well. Yeah, well, well, I think that's next on our list. One final point I want to make, and we've covered this in other episodes with the swing speed training. If you're going to invest in, let's say you're going to do super speed golf, the stack's getting more popular, a swing speed training system. I would say it's a necessity that you're going to have to have some type of swing speed radar. This There's a sports sensor one that's like 120 bucks. Most people are deferring to the PRGR now because it's also a launch monitor. I can't tell you how important it is when you're doing the speed stick training to make sure that you're seeing how fast you're swinging on each rep and keeping track of that because there's a lot of times where the intent and the result are different. And when you start to see the feedback of your swing speed on every swing, it it does something like you can go at it harder. There's usually something more in the tank and that's really what you're trying to do in those workouts is you're trying to unlock as much speed as possible in your body so that when you are swinging normally, you can swing faster without feeling like you're swinging faster. It's like taking the regulator off of a golf cart. So I would say that if you are going to work on swing speed in the off season, it, it's a necessity to have some type of, of of swing speed radar. So either the PRGR or the SC200 Plus can do that. Just so people know, the Swing Caddy SC300 and the Rapsido MLM and the Flight Scope, they will not track your swing speed while you're just swinging a stick without a ball. So those are really the only two models you can work with. I believe also the Garmin G80 will measure your swing speed without hitting a ball but that's 500 bucks. So that's another thing I would say is that definitely use a a radar if you're going to do swing speed training and then track with your driver how that is translating. Are you swinging faster? Is your ball speed improving? Is your distance improving? The feedback is super important. Yeah, often we can get different different speeds when you're doing swing speed training versus with a club because some people, when they get a club in their hand and they actually have to hit an object their brains slow everything down because there's now contact precision is, is key as well. So if you're seeing your your speeds go up while speed training, but not seeing that transfer with a club, which would be rare, but if it's not transferring with a club, there's probably some internal regulator going on there that uh, maybe it's saying the skill of strike is not good enough at the moment. And that's your brain is just turning off the extra speed because it's prioritizing strike. Absolutely. And that's why those workouts do not involve hitting a golf ball because, yeah, you'll move much faster with a, with a, with a stick knowing that your body doesn't need to 
you do slow down a little bit at impact. I think I heard Sasha McKenzie talking about that on one of the podcasts. So that's a way to kind of like remove the association with the golf ball and just like going out as hard as you possibly can. So yeah, I think those are all meaningful ways to practice with these launch monitors if you're going to make the investment in them. I think they could be solid feedback tools. They're not going to magically fix your golf game. But yeah, I mean, as a small plug, we, we do offer them in the practical golf deals section, all the ones I've talked about. So you can get a deal from us. And most of the people that I've sold them to are, are mostly happy with them because they're armed with the proper information on how to practice with them. You know, it's just like anything else. If you buy it, and you don't know how to use it or you're not really engaged with it, it's just another thing that will collect dust. So I would only purchase one if you're going to be doing the swing speed training or you are practicing at home into a net and you want that feedback. Be prepared to to work with it. They're not magic, but they're they're pretty good practice tools. We're going to take a quick break here and we will be right back. If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals, and that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why 2.5 million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. And we're back. Let's have a look at the $2,000 range or even the GC3 just came out, right? And I, yep. I don't know what, what price is that. But so, no, it, the GC3 is like closer to, to seven or eight if you're buying okay. it from Foresight. So the next level, and I think this is a huge jump, but again, it's, it's not in everyone's budget. I totally get that. At $2,000, you're getting access to the SkyTrack and now the Mevo Plus. And with that, you are getting way more accurate data on spin rate, launch angle, ball speed, distance. But more importantly, you're also getting simulated ball flight. You're getting dispersion data. You can play simulated courses, which I think is a great form of practice. Adam and myself have been playing against each other recently. It's been a lot of fun. So there's a big step above from that 500 and below to the $2,000 category. I'm going to quickly say a lot of people have asked me about this new Garmin, the R10. I've tested it. There are still some software updates that need to happen with it. I, I don't think it's fully there yet. I've not seen the same accuracy on it yet that I've seen in Skytrack. 
but I, I still think there's some future software updates that could get it closer. But right now, I'm not willing to say it's a SkyTrack equivalent because it's not. I saw some of the initial tests of an R10 versus a GC2, and the numbers weren't very enticing. <laughs> you know, when I saw it, this it, R10 was coming out, I thought this is going to be a game changer because I thought that it's going to open up this type of stuff to everybody. But looking at the numbers, I thought I, I, will, I wouldn't get it right it's, now. It's struggling with spin axis, which is determining, you know, whether you hit a draw or a fade. Like anyone who listens to the show knows that I continually talk about my draw. And they're probably sick of it. But I was hitting some shots on it. And it wasn't getting the spin axis right. So I was saying I was hitting a fade. Again, I think they're, I don't want to bash Garmin here because I think they're still working on this product. But right now, I'm not prepared to say that you're going to get simulated golf shots that will look how they do in real life with the sky track i can be much more confident in saying that because i've used it for five years i've hit tens of thousands of shots on it indoors i've compared it against TrackMan and the gc quad and even the flight scope more expensive models it's very 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 good especially if you're using it indoors outdoors i would say it can struggle a little bit more in direct sunlight but yeah i think when you're getting simulated ball flight and you can measure your dispersion and where the ball's going directionally, that, that opens up a lot more doors for you. Yeah, definitely. You can start to do more tests. That You could test different shot shapes. So you could hit fades towards a target or draws or straight shots and see which one produces the best outcomes for you. You could test different clubs as well. I, I probably wouldn't use a SkyTrack or Mevo Plus for club fitting. I mean, if you're if you're doing that, then you'd want the real higher end stuff. No, yeah, you you would want. They do not provide club head data, like the path of the club, attack angle, impact location. You could fit on them, but I would I'd prefer to be fit on a GC quad, to be quite yeah. honest. And 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 you know our fitting expert on the show, Woody Lashen, uses a GC quad for numerous reasons. Yeah, you I can mean, certainly I, test different different swing thoughts. Or, oh, you know, I, I, I'm big on testing that kind of stuff. I've done a number of tests that I've used for the site, but what I love to do with my SkyTrack is a few things. It kind of verifies dispersion data. So, for example. If I hit 20 sand wedges to a target, you can set up different targets for yourself or, or 27 irons and look at all the dispersion Then I'm getting a, a realistic understanding of what's going on in real life. And that helps me with strategy and expectation management. It really opens your eyes up in, into where the golf ball could go, not just on one swing, but on multiple swings. But more importantly, I've, I've verified so many things like my ball position. I've experimented with moving my ball up in my stance with lower lofted irons and verified that for me, that's a good matchup. If I keep them in the middle of my stance with like, let's say a four iron, I hit it too low with too little spin and too much curvature. Or now I verified that if I move my four or five, six iron up in my stance a little bit, I'm launching it a little bit higher with less of a draw so I can hold the green a little bit better. So I've done a number of tests like that where I've kind of tested a hypothesis I had about my swing or, or or how I set up to the golf ball. And then I'm looking at the data and I'm saying like, okay, this is I'm, – I'm seeing clear differences here. And now I can go out on the course and know that when I set up to the ball, that is the optimal ball position for me with that club, more specifically with the driver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just all algorithmic if – 
if I introduce a later release feeling in my swing, I know the results or that it changes the club delivery in this way, it changes the outcome in this way. So, you know, a later for a release for me tends to produce a more right shot pattern, whereas an earlier release tends to be more left. Same if I swing it really hard, I tend to produce a more right bias pattern, whereas when I swing really soft, it tends to be more left bias. So knowing these things and testing these things out helps you when it comes to correcting yourself and just knowing your patterns. Yeah, that's one of the things that you can pick up on is that you're, again, looking at dispersion, that type of stuff. Let's say you hit a bunch of eight irons to the target. Are you missing a lot of them short and long, which I think would be a representation of how well you were striking it? Or is, you know, left to right more of a problem like, you know, the face control and the path of your club? Yeah. So I would, people who get access to those launch monitors, I would do more of that type of testing where you're looking at where the ball is ending up and how it's kind of like curving through the air. One caution I would give is, especially with like maybe irons and approach clubs, you know, because I got this question on Twitter, like, how do you optimize for each club? I think that's, I'd love your opinion on this too, Adam, is like, I, I don't want people to get too obsessed with spin rates and launch angles with every club in your bag, because there's a lot of matchups into how the golf ball flies, how it should, and your golf swing. So I'd be more concerned with the dispersion data and what the ball looks like through the air rather than playing, oh, well, let's try and spin at 5,400 with my 7-iron versus 5,800. That can open up a little bit of a can of worms where I think you might be chasing numbers that you don't fully understand versus keeping things a little bit more simple and looking at the ball flight and where it's ending up. Yeah, it's fun to optimize, but you probably should do that under the supervision of a pro and You've got to understand that optimizing things, I mean, what is optimal? You know, if, for example, yes, you could say that hitting up on the ball and launching the ball at 18 with 1700 RPMs of spin, that's optimal for distance. But what about direction? Exactly. What if you do that and you end up hitting it all over the map? So optimal might be different for everybody. And yeah, in terms of, uh, we had the question on Twitter, you know, what are the optimal launch angles and spins for different clubs? I would say there are ranges. There's not an optimal there. And it depends a lot on what you like to see as well. Like I like to see a low flighted, low spinning ball. That's just what I like to see in my eye. Whereas some other people like a higher flight with their shots. So it's, we have to take into account lots of things when we talk about optimal. There are certainly ranges you wouldn't want to be in. Like you don't want to hit a seven iron and have it spinning at 1,000 RPMs because you're never going to hold a green, but very few people are in those ranges. So Skytrack does have a shot optimization tool on it. So you can like select a seven iron and we'll tell you if you're in a reasonable range. I wouldn't say it's like 100% perfect, but I think my main message to people with like pretty much anything in golf is like you want to avoid extremes. So like what, what Adam said is like you can't hit a seven iron with 1,000, 2,000 or 3,000 RPMs of spin. Like that's just too extreme. The ball's not going to carry enough and vice versa. Like if you're somehow spinning a seven iron 10,000 RPMs, I don't know how someone would do that, but I'm sure it's possible at a much higher swing speed well, then maybe the ball is going to climb way too much in the air. So you can use the shot optimization tool to see if you're kind of in a reasonable range. But again, I, especially with like approach clubs, I wouldn't obsess about it. Now, if we're talking about driver, then I would say there's some more opportunity to dial things in. 
And that's what I've done for years with it. And and when I say dial things in, I've experimented with ball position and my stance and tee height and then kind of playing with those to find out what gives me for my swing, optimized distance, curvature, essentially trying to launch it in that maybe 12 to 15 degree window with low 2000 spin. And for me, not trying to draw it too much. And I've just found that teeing a little bit higher further up in my stance and me trying to hit up on the balls helped a lot with that. And I verified that info with my SkyTrack. Whereas some other people, maybe that's not. Maybe the ball needs to be a little bit not so far up in their stance. So I think there's a lot of good work you could do with with the driver specifically where you maybe can hone in on those numbers a little bit more and work with that shot optimization tool. Well, I'm a good example of being going to the other end of the extreme. And I, I know how to optimize my driver for distance. Yep. So I know if I hit it 18 degrees launch with less than 2K spin, that is optimal for my distance. However, I've actually settled on something less than optimal. So, you know, when I was seeking optimal, in air quotes, I was hitting probably 10, sometimes 12 degrees up on it. But whereas what I've settled on is about five to six degrees on the upswing that I hit now. Now, that doesn't give me optimal distance, but it only loses about 10 yards of carry for me. But I get better dispersion with that. So for yeah, me, you, that, you can't go out on the. I, I can't imagine anyone going on the golf course, <laughs> especially oh, under pressure, hitting 10, 10 up on it. It just I seems have. like I I, I'm sure you could do it, but it's, it's, it. I wouldn't recommend it for most people. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, if you're looking at, if you've got a player who's a long drive champion, then dispersion is not the biggest issue for them. Exactly. It's just, we got to just... squeeze every single yard out of it. So it depends, you know, optimal for tour player, optimal for handicap player, optimal for uh, long drive champion. Yeah, and, and there's multiple, uh, I apologize for the Mevo Plus people who are interested in that. I haven't used it much. I, I'm assuming there are similar functions on it because they're they're quite similar products. One distinction I would make is that Mevo Plus is a radar-based launch monitor where SkyTrack is camera-based. So just a quick like recommendation for people, like if you were primarily going to use it indoors, I would suggest getting the SkyTrack because it's camera-based. The Mevo Plus will need way more space behind the ball and in front of it to get accurate readings because it needs to see the ball spin. If it can't see it spin enough, then it's going to be guessing a little bit more. But there's these new Titleist balls that they develop with TrackMan that I'm starting to hear will will help that a little bit. But that would be my recommendation is if you're primarily using it indoors at this price level, go with SkyTrack. But Mevo Plus would be better outdoors if you're kind of using it for both scenarios. But another point I wanted to make about when you have all this dispersion data and stuff like that, there's a lot of games you can play that I think are fun rather than just pumping the same shot over and over again. SkyTrack has a randomization tool. So you can set up like different greens, different distances and kind of test yourself. So you can have a 200-yard shot, 160-yard shot, 100-yard shot. It has a skills assessment game, which is similar and gives you a score. It has a wedge matrix game. So there's a lot of cool features at these price levels that get built into the software that I think can guide people more in their practice sessions and make them a little bit more challenging and fun. Does SkyTrack, does the app give you standard deviations as well? It does in the dispersion, yeah. It will show you like if you're looking at – I'm trying to look back. If you're looking at 
like if you hit like 20 yard 20 shots and look at all the readouts on the data screen it will give you dispersion numbers so if you hit like 20 drivers it would say like oh your dispersion was 55 yards and then you can look at a visual representation of it is that what you're looking for i mean dispersion if you're looking left and right the range that's okay information, but standard deviation is really important. I don't believe it gives you standard deviation. You could probably just plug it into a standard deviation calculator anyway. It'd be a bit of a hassle to do that manually, but yeah, you could get those numbers because that gives you your consistency because I've had it where we test certain things with people, maybe test certain clubs and their one club might be more accurate on an average. The bias to it is zero. In other words, they're hitting left and right, but the average is zero. Whereas another one might be more left biased, but there's a, a smaller standard deviation. And so then we'd have to look at that and say, well, the one with the smaller standard deviation is your more consistent pattern. Yeah, I if mean, we you took could, that and aimed it up the right side, that would be the best shot for you. You can usually look on like, I, I can, you know, if you look at the scatter plot, like they give you like a bird's eye view of, of where all your shots ended up. You get that ellipsis view and that becomes fairly clear. Or you could set up like greens of different sizes and seeing how often you hit the green versus not. Either way, this is the kind of practice I've I've done with it for years. And whether it's dialing in my wedges, optimizing my driver, verifying all of my distances with all my irons, making sure I'm getting the right ball position. Like all of these things, I have verified info now so that when I go out on the course, I have more confidence in what I'm doing. Or oh, the beauty of the beauty of this stuff in terms of practice is what we've been doing recently, which is simulated golf. Yeah, that we haven't even gotten to that. Like I don't even, now that I switched, I was a little stubborn for years where I didn't want to go back to using a PC. So I was running it off my iPad and there just aren't many simulation options on the iPad. It's just World Golf Tour, which is okay. But you kind of, you convinced me recently to get the gaming computer and go to TGC 19. But yeah, I mean, playing simulated golf courses and all these cool courses from around the world and playing in online tournaments, like it's it's fun and it's also wonderful practice because and it's so different to hitting yeah. balls on the range. I mean, Absolutely. I can stand on that range all day and just pummel them down there onto the target. But the moment you stick me against you in a simulated environment, you've got one shot that matters and then you have to wait for a few minutes for the partner to hit. It just makes the game so much more realistic and difficult. Yeah. I, I often tell people like, Outside of working in that range environment software, which is very valuable for all that testing and what we've discussed, but like I kind of find myself just wanting to play around the golf now. And I often say playing golf is the best way to practice golf. So I, I think that's still true in the simulated environment as well, because now we're playing these online tournaments and I'm like, yeah, I want to score well. So I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, planning my shots out, looking at the course, picking the right target doing my practice swings and and going through my routine. And it's just, that's the type of practice that I know you and me always want to push people to where you're more engaged. It's not real golf, but at least you're trying to simulate that environment versus rifling through your seven iron over and over again. And for some of the players that I work with, we're always about collecting data. You know, what is the reason why you're not as good as you are? And so after each shot, after each mistake, you would write down things like, oh, well, I, I hit it short because it was a toe shot. And then that next one, or oh, I hit it left because I closed the face down. And then you just gather this data. And 
if you're just doing that on the course, then if you're playing like two, three times a week, it's going to be very slow. It's going to take months to gather, gather enough data. Whereas the players that I've got that can do simulated golf indoors, they can gather the data so much quicker. We can go through full rounds of golf in like an hour or so. And so you can, in four hours, you can collect four rounds worth, four weeks worth of data, basically. Yeah, I... Again, it, it, I realized that two thousand, and also there there are still supply chain issues. So sometimes these products are like in stock and then not in stock. So you always have to check on this. But yeah, I think there is still a huge gap between that five hundred dollar to two thousand dollar level. And people keep asking me, they're like, "Well, when's it going to stop?" Like, I don't know. It's 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 very costly to develop these products to make a SkyTrack or a Mevo Plus, all the software and hardware, like there's millions of dollars of investment. So I think, I don't know how many years it will take, but I don't know when, if and when there will be a $500 launch monitor that gives you everything you want that like a SkyTrack or Mevo Plus would. As it stands right now, again, I, I, I still think the jury might be a little bit out on that Garmin R10, but from what I saw, it wasn't close enough where I'm ready to give it the thumbs up. So yeah, I would say if you are investing in your game and your practice, and more importantly, like if you live in a place where winter is four, five, six months long, yeah, these that that two thousand dollar level is a, is a sweet spot. I'll, I'll plug the show there. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a great mixture of accuracy, data, great software integrations with multiple simulation companies, and the native software on the range is very good at challenging you. So yeah, I think that's a that's a really solid investment. So now do we want to move on to the six thousand to the twenty thousand dollar range? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean there's there's loads. There's a, the ones that you put on your ceiling, or are they call the Unicore. Yeah, so there's there's a few so right now the I think the exciting release was the company that owns Bushnell acquired Foresight and at the same time it was kind of a bizarre release, but they released Foresight released the GC3, and at the same time, Bushnell has also released the same exact launch monitor, but there's like different pricing models. If you, I think if you purchase it through Foresight, you're going to get all of the data without like as many yearly costs versus if you went through Bushnell, like there's some more costs every year. I, I think the smarter thing would just be to buy it through Foresight, but what do I know? But that one's interesting because I think it's like seven or eight grand. It's giving you club path. It's not giving you face angle or impact location. And I think it might give you attack angle as well. well actually, we, we should even say, going back to the Mevo Plus, they're adding, they're adding for an upgrade, right? It's like $1,000 extra and you can they're going to start to give things like path and face, I believe. Yeah, I think that is coming. I'm going to be testing the Mevo Plus soon with these new Titleist balls that they designed for TrackMan, which is supposed to help radars spot the spin better indoors. So once I do that, I'm going to kind of give like an update on the Mevo Plus. It might make it a much better, a much better option indoors with limited space. But yeah, the so far the testing on that new Foresight GC3 is like pretty much is like it's almost as accurate as the GC quad, you're just not getting as much club head data. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I went for the GC quad, which is the top of, top of the line one, just because I, 
need in my instruction or yeah, I it's like a, it's to an, have it's a, that club data. It's but. an enterprise level product and I think it's more suited for club fitters and teaching professionals. And that's like kind of what I wanted to talk about in general in this category is FlightScope has more expensive models. I think like the XI, they have a few different ones that are anywhere from like eight to 15 grand, something like that. Obviously, TrackMan is one of the big names. But when you get to the enterprise level or what I would call it, now you're getting all of this like clubhead data. You're getting path, face angle, face to path, attack angle. I know TrackMan has, you know, low point, all those other ones. And then Foresight, you're getting dynamic lie angle, impact location, the delivered loft of the club, dynamic loft. There's a lot of stuff coming at you. Yes. There's like outcome data, which is distance, direction, trajectory. There's ball flight data, which is launch angle, spin rate, ball speed, things like that. And then there's the impact or club head data. So the seven impact laws, you know, none of them measure ground contact currently. Yeah, wait, which is waiting to see when that happens. Which is kind of like upsetting, but I guess it's a limitation of the technology. Yeah, I suppose it. I, I think it could be done. I don't see why it can't. Well, does, be Well, doesn't but. does Trackman do low point? Yeah, Trackman does low so point. So could location. you work? Can you work backward from that? Yeah, you'd need to know things like arc width, yeah, uh, low point location, and then arc depth at a certain point. But it's doing it's doing vertical face strike location, so it knows it knows the depth to a certain extent. So I think it'd just be an algorithmic change. Yeah, like combining all, all of that stuff and making a estimation of where you made ground contact. Yeah. You know, I use vertical strike location with my GC quad. If I see someone has a decent angle of attack and they keep hitting high on the face, we know it's a fat contact. Yeah. Whereas if it's low on the face, then it's obviously a thin contact. Thin to win. That's my story. <laughs> yeah, that's you. <laughs> so I've spent a lot of time. I've been on track, man. I've been on GC quads. I've even been on some of like the... There's some really high-end simulators like Full Swing Golf. They're like $50,000 about golf where they'll give you all that data. And for me, it's it's tough because I always try and think of everything in the context of the 10, 15 handicapped golfer who has not studied <laughs> the golf swing and impact laws and understand how they all work together. So it's a lot of stuff coming at you. And I, and I worry that someone who has access to a track man or, or these tools and they're using it themselves and maybe not with an instructor. I just worry, like, is it too much for them? Like, I, I think most of it is. I don't think someone can look at attack angle, face to path, all of these things and make meaningful analysis of their golf swing without being, you got to study it quite a bit. I mean, you you learned on TrackMan for quite some time when you first got it, right? I remember the first time looking at the TrackMan data. So we went and had a training session in Champions Gate and they just got their new TrackMan and we've seen all these numbers and we, you know, I, I'm someone who knows about the impact laws and some of the numbers, we're just looking at this wall of numbers and we're going, what's that mean? Yeah. What's the difference there between swing direction and swing path, club path? I don't understand the difference. Now I know because we'd be more educated on things like D-plane. What's the difference? What's vertical swing plane versus horizontal swing plane? And it, it can be quite confusing. And you've got, like I said, all the outcome data, ball launch, spin, launch direction, launch angle, ball speed, 
you've got spin axis, you've got then every single club data. Oh, it's It can be very confusing for someone who's not in the know. And even if you know what each individual number means, you might not be able to see the connections. Yeah, they all them. they all work. It's like this big symphony. <laughs> Think of it like an orchestra. You have all these different numbers and they're all the different instruments in the symphony creating the the ball flight, which is the music. And if you don't understand how they all work together, hopefully that was an interesting metaphor. I'm stopping myself midway. But yeah, like if you start isolating them one by one, you're like, oh, let me work on my attack angle. Well, how do you know that what your attack angle does might affect your club path? And then you're looking at the club path. Well, that changed. Well, what does that mean? So I always worry about golfers going down wormholes, whatever you want to call it, and, and, and getting too confused and then forgetting about the most important thing to me is, is like watching the ball flight and working backward. And you can do that with these. It's just that you need a, a much more advanced understanding of how they all work together. Yeah, I do educate players on that in, in the next level golf program. I educate them on what each individual number means if they're working on launch monitors and how to change these things as well. So for example, if you've got an angle of attack that's too shallow, so I'm speaking to you here, John, um, you know, you could change that in a couple, in a few different ways. You could shift the low point further forwards. That's how most people would think of doing it. Or you could actually swing more left and that shifts the low point forwards as well. But it, it does so in different ways or it'll have a different effect on the path. So say I took you with a shallow angle of attack and I made you shift your weight more forwards. The angle of attack would get steeper, but your path would also go more to the right, which probably isn't a good thing for you. No, it would and, not be a good thing. And your face would be more open as well, which could be good, could be bad depending on the day. Whereas if I took you and I made you swing more to the left, that would actually neutralize your path while getting the angle of attack steeper. So, and that, to me, that stuff is basic. Whereas I know a lot of people listening, they're scrambling for the rewind 30 seconds button now because they're like, I've got to hear that again. I don't understand that. So this stuff is really basic for a pro to understand, whereas many amateurs are just going to be completely lost in how to change these things. And you can change things in a way that might hurt you, not help you. Yeah. I mean, I like, let's say I was like, that, that's one of the reasons I've kind of refrained from getting a more advanced launch monitors because I honestly don't know what I'd do with it. I think I'd be interested in just my club path and face angle mostly and just verifying those numbers. But I wouldn't, if I looked at those 20 boxes on the track, man, I, I'd be like, I, I don't know what to do with those numbers. I don't want to know what to do with those numbers. That's not, that's not how I want to play golf because I'm not teaching the swing and, and, and helping golfers in that way. I, I'm working, I'm committed to my ball flight and making my adjustments on, on the impact variables we often talk about on this show. So for someone who I guess knows as much as I do about a lot of these things, I refrain from looking at them because to be honest, I don't want to know half the time. I don't want to get too obsessed with trying to hit a number versus me determining whether or not my ball flight is functional and making my internal adjustments that I want to make to get that better. That's, that, a, that's a great phrase, internal adjustments. And even in my own game, I've got all this data at my fingertips, but in my own game, when I'm playing this sim golf, I'm turning off a lot of the data. I'm not looking at it. So I'm not looking at things like path when I'm playing. 
sim golf. I'm not looking at angle of attack. I'm not looking at launch angle or, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff I'm not. I'm not even looking at face angle. We talk about that as one of the big three, right? Face angle. It's number two for me. Yeah, I don't look at the specific number of it, though. And the reason why is because all I do when I'm playing is I respond to the ball flight. If the ball went too far left, I'm just going to open the face a little bit more. I don't need to know the exact number. I just need to feel how much do I need to open it. And that's that's really important because if you get too wrapped up in the numbers, um, when that device is taken away from you, and you don't have those numbers at your fingertips, we lose a lot of our ability. It's been you know, scientifically shown. Whereas if we learn these things based on more intrinsic feedback, then it tends to transfer to the golf course better. Exactly. Like that, that to me would be like the dark side of it, meaning like face angle is a variable. On every golf swing you make on the course, you're not going to present the club face at the same angle all the time. And it needs to adjust based on what your club path is doing to make that functional ball flight. So if you're going out on the course being like, well, I want to present the club face three degrees open to my target and close to my path on every single swing, I think you're going to be in for a rough day. (laughs) Because if your club path isn't matching up to that, well, things might not go so well for you. And then you're kind of, like you said, you're obsessing a little bit too much about a number versus creating internal feels and adjustments that golf requires. That yeah, the being, only time, sorry, go on. You know, you go ahead. I was going to say the only time that I use precise numbers for like face angles, if I'm doing a specific differential practice drill. So I'm saying, okay, I want you to try and present the face two degrees open then four degrees open then six degrees open. So they start to build a feel and they're getting that feedback from the device. But eventually we get to the point where we take the device away and they're doing it based on the feels that they've learned. So it can be great in initially developing those feels, but afterwards it has to be internalized. Yeah. And I think I'm a huge proponent of using launch monitors like these for lessons. I think, and I, I've, I've watched, I've been fortunate enough to be around some great instructors. They've let me kind of watch their, their lessons. And I've seen instructors use the technology in a very, what I would say is a responsible way is that, you know, they're looking at all those track man numbers and then they're going to the student, not showing them what they necessarily all of them they'll be like okay here's what's happening with your ball flight now i'm going to bring that back to a couple of numbers here and yeah let's say with the slicer their their path was way too to the left it's like you are 10 degrees into out right i'm sorry out to in we need to get that moved over a bit so let's work on this and then we can verify if we're moving in the right direction with this tool i've got here so they know the numbers well enough and how they work together and you've talked about this before in multiple episodes, and they're kind of thinking in their head like, okay, I'm going to tell the golfer this to satisfy these numbers. But they're not overwhelming the golfer with them because it's it's just not information they necessarily need to know. Or they reveal enough of it to explain their point where they start to you know maybe understand the ball flight more, laws more. That to me is a more responsible way to work with these tools in a lesson environment. 
Yeah, it's, it's great for being able to isolate one thing. Like you said, with path, if you've got a slicer who's 10 degrees left, I might put a foam golf ball down and just say, well, let's just focus on getting that number more to the right. So we'll get it more positive. And so they're zoning in on just one of the numbers instead of the wall of numbers. And once they get that in place into a desirable area, then, then we start to add on maybe, okay, well, let's get that there and we'll add on the face number. But again, this is it we're talking about in a lesson here. We wouldn't necessarily be playing thinking about that. Exactly. Uh, it's got to be internalized as a feel eventually. Yeah, you, you can't, I mean, listen, anything's possible in golf. I, I never want to say never, but I think it's much harder for even a pro golfer, but let's say a recreational golfer to go out on the course <laughs> worrying about their spin loft or what what degree of face angle and like these numbers floating around in their head that to me is going to make the game a little bit too challenging for you and then you're starting to play golf numbers and not golf yeah so yeah i think my main takeaway on the enterprise level ones is like let's say you are someone who can afford them and let's say you get the gc quad in your house or the track man and you've got the souped up simulator and all that stuff Maybe just pay attention to your club path and face angle on that relationship. Maybe you've learned enough from some of the topics we've discussed on this show that you're a little bit more knowledgeable about them and how they work together. But I, I wouldn't obsess over them too much. I'd look for that functional ball flight and see maybe what a couple of those numbers help produce that flight and try and verify if you can create them. And then, of course, take the training wheels off and don't think about them later. So... Yeah, I get a little worried when players who don't have the knowledge use the more advanced tools. Well, in my own game and, and with teaching other players as well, the main things I look at with these devices, I look at the path to see if it's wildly off. In my own game as well, if I have a tendency, if I'm not thinking about it, if I get a little lazy or out of practice, my path starts to creep too much to the right. And so I just monitor it. As long as it's within three degrees of the target, I'm absolutely fine. Once it's there, I kind of turn that off out of my brain. But if I'm hitting it bad one day, poorly one day, and things are overhooking, I'll start to look at the path number and see, well, is that getting too far from the inside? Also, angle of attack as well. One of my bad habits is to get a little shallow with the angle of attack. So again, I only really notice that if my ground contact starts to get bad, I'll start to look at that number. Otherwise, it's not in my consciousness or my awareness. Strike location. You can feel feel it mostly, but I'll be honest, since I've changed and modernized my clubs, it's become much more difficult to know the strike. So I do like the advantage of using the vertical and horizontal strike function on GC Quad. You can also use face spray for that. You don't need an expensive, expensive launch monitor for that. Occasionally, I'll look at launch angle as well with irons. When I get into a bad habit, I start releasing a little earlier and launching the ball high. And so that can start to sink into or seep into bad ground contact issues. So I just, I just make sure again, the launch angle is in within a certain range. And then with other players that I'm teaching, I'll look at club speed and efficiency or smash factor. So just to see if that efficiency is really low and they're not hitting it very far, I can start to then do a little bit of detective work and say, well, where are they losing? Where's that power leak? And then I can actually look at things like spin loft or whether the face is too open or closed to the path and reducing, reducing the energy transference. Yeah, I would say whether you have access to one of these more advanced ones or you own one yourself, 
if you are working with an instructor, maybe they can identify some of your problem areas. Like obviously Adam can self-diagnose his problem areas because he knows what he's doing, but pretty much what just Adam said, like, let's say you're instructor can identify you be like, listen, you know, when things get out of whack in your swing, you're eight to 10 degrees with your swing path in one direction, or, or this is not working out. And then you could pay attention to those numbers knowing that, hey, this is something I'm working on and trying to neutralize them. Or let's say you book some time on a track man or something like that. I know that's possible. If you know what you're looking for and you keep it simple, that could be a way to verify how things are going. Like I'm going to be we just had Woody Lashin on for our iron fitting episode last week. I'm actually going to see him in a couple of weeks. And it's actually going to be the first time I'll be on a GC quad in a while because of the pandemic. So I'm actually interested to see where my club path numbers are now, just, just out of interest. I think I've neutralized them. So I'm, I'm going to be looking at them and kind of verifying where they are. But again, not, not too obsessed with them because I'm confident in the functional ball flight that I work on in practice. I'll tell you what, what this head data me- measurement is really good for in lessons is when a player, say they're hitting shots and they're going well, they hit another good one, and then they hit one bad one. Maybe it pull hooks. And I'll say to that player, what do you think changed in that? And usually they'll say something like, oh, I came way over the top of it on that one. And we'll go into the data and we'll have a look at their swing path. And we see actually on that one, their swing path didn't change. (laughs) The swing path very rarely changes. What happened on that last one was a club face issue. So I know that. I I know that even without the launch monitor. But it's nice to have it there, to have that data there to prove it to the player that, no, when you hit it left, it's not you coming over the top of it like you think or feel or like your playing partner tells you. It's just the club face closed down more. That started the ball more left and it caused it to hook even further the left so it's great for seeing that or even a gear effect change so say someone's hitting their driver they hit it straight 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 and then all of a sudden one hooks and i say what do you think changed and they say oh well, it must have been the club face and we go into the data and see well actually the club face was presented squarely it was actually a toe shot and that was toe gear effect so it helps helps a player to diagnose so these are advantageous it's just it's just that balance between having that information and knowing what to do with it yeah that that's ultimately what it boils down to so i'd say for most people like that's kind of why i like the skytrack mevo plus for most people because they're just getting ball data and ball flight data so they can kind of keep it more simple on that front and not obsess over well, they, they can't even see what their club path was so yeah that's where i stand on it i'm just looking at some of the other questions we got on twitter let's <laughs> so, do another episode on this there was so many stuff that we haven't covered so many so many questions we haven't covered that... yeah that that's true one question i'll address here and i i, I don't want to bash optishot but i got to be honest with people someone asked me if optishot 2 is worth practicing on I'm going to say no, it's not. I've used the OptiShot too. It, it's not accurate enough with club path or anything. The, the simulated ball flight was way off for me. It's a fun game that you can mess around with, but I would not diagnose your swing with the OptiShot too. So I'll just uh, answer that question quickly. <laughs> also, yeah. another another one that people brought up, altitude setting and temperature. I'll let people know that, and I won't name names, but if you show up to certain golf club companies and test out clubs 
you're like, wow, I'm hitting this driver 310 yards. That's probably because they set the altitude at 8,000 feet and the temperature at 105 degrees or something like that. Hey, man, that's Vegas. Yeah, exactly. If you're in Vegas or, or certain parts of maybe Colorado, that might work. But if you're like me and you're playing golf at sea level, you're not going to hit it that far. So I would be wary of altitude settings and temperature settings. And, and if you are going to practice on them, make sure they match the conditions that you actually play in because you don't want to get numbers that are way off. And, and Skytrack, even at that level, Skytrack does have settings for that. Yeah, make sure they haven't put wind behind you as well. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I've seen, like, I just, I, I've showed up to certain places and I'm like, they are really jacking this up because, you know, they want people to buy the driver. I get it, but it's a little bit misleading. Well, I think I've said that one of the worst experiences I've, see, I've seen was a pupil in Spain came came in really excited one day. He's like, I've just got these new irons. And I'm hitting everything 30 yards further. <laughs> And then he went on track, man, and, and we, we were like, after 20 shots, we're like, I'm sorry, mate, but you're not. He's like, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. When I was there testing it, I was hitting it 30 yards further. And we ended up through lots of questioning. We figured out he was hitting the ball with the cellophane wrap on the face. Uh, so it was reducing so the spin. It was dropping the spin down to yeah. like 2,000 RPM. So it's basically like coming out like a dryer, yeah, yeah a driver. So watch out for all these things. Jacked yeah. up altitudes, jacked up temperatures, jacked up wind behind you. I don't think any of them have boosts anymore, but these are the ways of boosting it covertly. All right. Yeah, let's I think we've I'm just looking over my notes here. I think I, I I've covered most things I want to. Like I said on, on the I understand most people are interested in the five hundred dollar and below category. As I said, I will post links to my reviews where I kind of show some testing in there and I go a little bit more in depth on their strengths and weaknesses. Hopefully we gave you some constructive ways to practice with all these. But yeah, I mean overall like they've my SkyTrack has helped me. The PRGR has helped me with my swing training and verifying swing speed. So I've gotten real benefit out of out of using launch monitors. But at the same time, I don't want golfers to go down the rabbit hole with the models that have more advanced features. I would love for you to lean on a instructor who's more learned in how they work and how it all works together. Because you know, Adam mentioned a few things in this episode that reveals his depth of knowledge about how, you know, changing one thing, how you focus where your, your weight is can shift your attack angle and your club path and the club face angle. So this stuff can get complicated. So just be careful is is my main word of caution for you. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to frighten people too much away from the advanced ones because if, you know, I love it when a pupil has a quad and they can send me the data and we can go through it. But again, yeah, they, but they're working they're with you. Using me. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're working with you. And, and it's not to say some people can't get there. There's a lot you can learn online now. Where can they learn that, John? I mean, they can obviously learn it at adamyounggolf.com. So, yeah, it, it's... I just know it takes a lot to intuitively understand all of these things like it's second nature and it, it yeah. takes many months and potentially years to get there. So don't step up to it thinking like you're going to, I don't want you to spend $20,000 and then get disappointed right off the bat. So that, that that's kind of the context of my caution for people. You've got to be willing to, you've got to be saying, if, I, if I'm going to get something that gives me all this club data measurement data, then 
I've got to be willing to learn and understand it. So whether that's through something like Trackman University, whether that's through my next level golf program, whether that's through working with an instructor, because an instructor can say, look, these are the numbers you need to focus on for the next week. And it's great having that feedback there. If you're doing it all on your own, you're not really analytical and you don't know anything about impact laws, that's where that information is going to do you more of a disservice, I would imagine. Absolutely. All right. Do we uh, do we want to wrap it up there? Yeah. Uh, well, for, for the for the expensive ones, if you do want a quad, if you if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm, I'm really analytical, I'd love a quad. If you contact me, Adam at adamyounggolf.com, that's my email address. I can put you in contact with one of the guys, and we can get you the the best deal on that. And I know for the lower end launch monitors, John, you have lots of contacts, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we have, if you go to the deals section of Practical Golf, we've got the PRGR, the Swing Caddies, the Rapsodo MLM. So you can get those from me. I can help you with them. So there's my little plug there. So, Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And apropos to this conversation, we want to thank our show sponsor, the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. If you are looking for everything you need for a home simulator, if you want to buy some of these products, you're going to need an impact screen, a net, a hitting mat. I have their hitting mat. It's awesome. They've they've developed a lot of these products in, in a DIY type of way. So you can set up projectors in your enclosure and you can give them a call and they can help you with making sure you have the right space in your house or your garage to set these things up. So check them out at shopindoorgolf.com and many thanks for their continued support of the show. And we will see everyone next time with a new episode.